How many of you have ever experienced a fire? I mean, a real fire. About maybe 12 years ago, we had a big cedar-sided barn on our property. And it was Thanksgiving morning or the day after Thanksgiving, something like that. We were on our way to Philadelphia to visit my parents and spend Thanksgiving with them. And I just got out of the shower and Helga said, the barn is on fire. And I looked out the window and I thought, oh, it's just something little. I'll just go out. It was the whole barn. It was a two-story barn, quite large. And it housed the pony in there and some other farm animals, goats and whatnot. And the whole barn was engulfed in flames. And so I threw on some clothes as fast as I could. I think I was sort of in shock because you're not really thinking, you're just responding and let the pony out. And what I remember is it was so hot that I couldn't even get close to it. Just to get to the gate where the pony was, it was difficult for me. But the sad part of the story is we had a pony that died, two goats, a ferret, and a pig all died in that fire. So it was very sad. But in the middle of that crisis and all that's going on, Helga's outside with me. The kids are inside. And Helga is moved by the Spirit of God to pray. And we have a kid's playhouse. It's a little wooden playhouse that was along the fence line. And she was moved by God to pray for the playhouse. Why? To this day, I have no idea why God would move her to pray for the playhouse. But you can come to our house today and you can see the evidence for yourself because the wood fence that was there at the time of the fire is still there. It's all charred on the one side and it stops at the playhouse. The playhouse was completely and utterly spared. Now, the question of why did God choose to spare that would have been nice if God had moved Helga to pray for the barn or the animals. That would have been nice. But the playhouse. So the point of this story is I have no idea why, but in the midst of that fire, there was this grace of God where he demonstrated his power to preserve something. It's almost as if the fire went right around it, missed it completely. doesn't make any sense. So as we read this last part of Daniel 3, we all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace, and it's been told and loved for centuries. But what the thread through this for me was the grace of God. And I don't think we can talk about the grace of God enough or understand the grace of God enough. And God's grace is what we will, what he will put on display in the middle of this story of these three Jewish guys. Now, there's other things here too, so please understand that I'm not denying all God's power, God's sovereignty, miracles, all that, but God's grace, God's grace because I think we misunderstand God's grace in some big ways. We want to say God's grace is so that I will never have to go through. People get saved, and we tell them, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then something difficult happens, and they say, wait a second, I thought God loved me and was gracious, and if God was gracious and God loved me, then this would never happen. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, if God was gracious, then we would never have to face the fire. And we'll talk about that. So hang on to that thought. Now, the recap, the big picture of Daniel, the big picture of everything is that there is the existence of a living God, and he has a kingdom, he has a family, and his family and his kingdom operate based on his personality. Love is central. Matter of fact, in Colossians, it said we are taken out of the kingdom of darkness. This is God's miracle in my life. He took me out of the kingdom of darkness, 
and put me into the kingdom of the son of his love. In his kingdom, his son is the object of his love. And he gives his son authority in that kingdom. And he loves us the same way he loves his son. So his kingdom is a kingdom that centers around, revolves around his love for his son that's also extended to all of us as his children. That's the real kingdom. But then Satan comes along and encourages man to set up an alternate kingdom. So there is the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of man, where man is at the center, where God is not trusted, where people can't be trusted, where there's shame and fear and guilt. And God's kingdom is a life-giving kingdom. Satan's kingdom is a death-bringing kingdom, the kingdom of man. Man's at the center. Satan is the influencer. You ever heard the saying, history repeats itself? The reason history repeats itself is because Satan has been influencing man's kingdoms throughout all of human history. So we see like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. There's still God and his kingdom. And there's still man's kingdom that's empowered by and influenced by Satan. Now, Satan can't make you do anything, but he can plant thoughts and he can plant ideas and he can plant suspicions and he can plant hopes and dreams that you can have your own little kingdom and be your own little God. And some cults have played on that idea, some false religions. You can be powerful. People will bow to you. It's an alternate and godless reality that ultimately brings death. By the way, We've talked about in the context of Daniel, the god Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, the one who was responsible in their eyes for the success. There were many gods. Marduk seems to be the primary god in the pantheon, and there's some ancient writings on how he got to be that. But here's an interesting thing. He's pictured as a man, but he is represented symbolically by an animal. Can you guess what animal? No, you can't guess what animal. You will never guess it. Maybe you will if you know. If you've ever seen the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, there's pictures of this animal all over it. He's represented by a snake dragon. That's the name of the animal, a snake dragon. You go, what a coincidence. It's a Satan-empowered, man-ruled empire with man at the center, Satan pulling the strings, and the representative animal is a snake dragon. Not just one but both of them in one place. And this is why history repeats itself. There's always been the snake dragon. So the beginning of Daniel 3, we have man-centered, not God-centered, man-centered religion, government, music, and art all collaborating to control people, not to free them. Man-centered government, man-centered music, man-centered art, the image, the idol, the golden idol. Man-centered governments. Nebuchadnezzar is the uncontested sovereign, ruler, emperor, He is the justice system, the lawmaker, the law enforcer, all that, all rolled into one. And that whole system exists to hurt people, to put people in slavery and bondage, not to free them, to control, not to free. So these guys, at the sound of the music, they refuse to bow, and someone's got a cell phone video, taking the video, and, oh, look, King, we got the cell phone video. Thousands of us bowed, but these guys refused to. They couldn't even pretend. They couldn't even pretend because it would have been a betrayal. To You know how that feels when you betray your own conscience? People really struggle when they betray their own conscience. They feel ashamed. So rather than betray their own conscience, they're true to themselves and they refuse to fall down. And that's where we kind of pick it up. They've been brought to the king. I'll run back to verse 16 and we'll head forward from there. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter about why they didn't bow down, even after given a second chance. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So that's where we left off, and we see this spirit that is in these three guys. They're no longer teenagers, or at least they're probably at a minimal into their 20s, possibly as old as 40, we don't know. But I think there's something about this that we just admire, the faith that says, we trust you no matter what. And this is not new in God's economy. This is Job. Some say Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, if not the oldest book in the Bible. And Job had this expression. Job said, though he, what? You know it. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if God decides to kill me, Job's sorting out his life. He's trying to work through this. And he says, even if God decided to kill me, and Job wasn't far from that, I would still trust him. And then we fast forward to the New Testament. You got the apostle Paul on his way to Jerusalem. He says, compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. That's not the message I like to hear from the Holy Spirit. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So there's a mentality, there's a mindset that is definitely not part of our American culture. And I'm with you guys in this. This is a battle for me. I admit, and I confess to you today, I love my life way too much. We have very good lives. You go to places around the world where they don't have such good lives, they're ready to die now. Take me to heaven now because anything's going to be better than living as a low-caste Dalit in India and cleaning out porta-potties or sewage systems by hand for a living and with no chance to progress from that. But we live in America, so we have good lives, and we are very protective of our lives. I'm not saying that we should be frugal with our lives. We don't test the Lord our God. But I think that in America, this is a difficulty we've had as the church is to be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't think I'm alone in that. I'm just trying to be, this a moment of pastoral honesty. I'm with you guys. I fight against that desire to save my life at all costs. Job even said, what will a man give for his life? I mean, when the rubber meets the road, as it were. Do we really believe in a heaven? Do we really believe in an eternity of love and light and truth and presence of God? And we must believe that that'd be better than our best day here on earth. That's why this story speaks to us all. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury because these guys refused to bow down. A second time, they said, no, it doesn't matter. Do what you want. We are not bowing down. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. So at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's countenance changes. I guess he was feeling like maybe this was some mistake. I think he kind of likes these Jewish guys. He's got a good relationship with Daniel and through Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think he kind of likes them. And he's willing to overlook the whole thing. He's willing to give them a second chance. Okay, when the music sounds, that's when you bow down. And and by the way, you know, we're not faced with statues that we have to bow down to. 
the images that we bow down to are a happiness matters more than anything image. The image of happiness. Live in the dream. The dream is the image, the idol of what we're shooting for, what we're aiming, what we're bowing to, what we're serving. And sometimes that means, well, if adultery is going to make me happy. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. But if that makes me happy in that moment, I bow down to the image and not to God. Anytime I choose to serve my own desires and the world promotes that to serve my own life, my own desires, then I'm bowing down. It's much more subtle. I bring that up because bowing down to the image of the world, to man-centered government where man is going to live eternally, doesn't matter how many smoothies we make, we're not going to live eternally in this body. We're not going to set up a kingdom that lasts forever for myself. But the world wants us to keep thinking that. So that's the bowing down. That's what they refused to do. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression on his face changes. He wants to make these guys now an object lesson. He spoke and he commanded that the furnace is turned up seven times more. He's going to make these guys a lesson. Going to make them an example to everybody else. That's what the cross was meant to be. The cross in Rome was meant to be an example to everyone, any slave that might try to run away or be disobedient, anybody who would oppose the government. The cross was meant to be a deterrent and meant to be an object lesson so that you didn't. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. Now, the interesting thing is God is going to step in and completely trash Nebuchadnezzar's lesson. And there's going to be a whole different lesson. So first we see his fury. The world system cannot process resistance. The world system cannot process you and I who think like God. They just don't know what to do with us. Satan has no power except persuasion. And when it doesn't work, all he has left is anger and threats. So the best way to make Satan really frustrated is don't listen to him. Don't bow to him. He can't hurt you. He's limited by God. He can threaten, but people get all freaked out about what Satan's going to do, what Satan's going to do. What's God doing? Even with Job, God said, Satan, you can only go this far. You can only go this far. All Satan can do is threaten you and use fear to try to get you to do something that's against the will of God. Step out from under the place of God's domain into his kingdom for a time, and then he's got you. God still loves you. God can forgive you. It's you that suffer. It's interesting. It's one thing to be an atheist. To be an atheist is to believe that something doesn't exist. And then it's not just you're an atheist, but then you got to tell other people that the thing that doesn't exist doesn't exist. You don't believe it exists. Why bother? If it doesn't exist, why are we talking about it? I don't believe it exists, and I don't want you to believe it exists either. Well, you know, it seems kind of crazy to me. We are evangelistic with our lives because we believe God does exist. We believe it's really important to know him. But I don't run around telling people there's no such thing as gnomes. Try to have a whole group that's anti-gnomes. We don't believe in gnomes. Okay. So there's the fury of Nebuchadnezzar, which is his response. And the furnace is just an outward expression of what's going on inside of him. The furnace is interesting because you got to figure, you know, they're there to worship the statue, this image, 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. They can't all of a sudden build a furnace. The furnace had to be there, functional. So it's likely that the furnace was serving the purpose of smelting and melting down the materials for the statue. It was already in operation, heating the metals. They also used furnaces to make weapons. But interestingly, excavations at Babylon also showed the historicity, the accuracy of Daniel in that furnaces were used for the purpose of punishment. 
This is from an article I read on biblical archaeology. In one of the earlier excavations at Babylon, a strange building was discovered, which initially appeared to be a firing kiln, much like those used to fire bricks and pottery. And the bricks of Babylon were hardened by being kiln-fired. This is an interesting story. Kind of a side note. Pause with me for a second. And all of their technology that they thought, oh, we're going to build this lasting empire with these bricks that are kiln-fired. They last for a long time. So Babylon gets conquered and Cyrus of Persia comes in and then they live there and Alexander the Great makes it his center. But eventually, and now Babylon is just a heap of ruins. And you know what contributed to that ruins is when they were building Baghdad, they thought we really could use some good building materials. So they went down to Babylon, grabbed all those kiln-fired bricks, dismantled Babylon and brought them up to help build Baghdad. So the very technology that they thought was going to make them last forever was the very thing that was used to dismantle the city that still sits in ruins to this day. Could you imagine telling Nebuchadnezzar at that time, this great city you have, your hanging gardens, your big beautiful gates, your big wall, your gold statues, all that stuff is going to be dust. Think he would have believed you? Think it would have mattered to him? No. So they found this kiln, much like those used to fire bricks and pottery. However, a cuneiform inscription revealed the purpose of the structure. This is the place of burning where men who blasphemed the gods of Chaldea died by fire. That was the inscription. While no one suggests that this was the actual furnace into which the Jewish boys were thrown, it does demonstrate that the scriptural account is consistent with the religious cultism of ancient Babylon. In addition, there's a cuneiform inscription from the library of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. It was discovered at Nineveh about a century ago and is now housed in the British Museum. This inscription reads, Salmagina, my rebellious brother who made war with me, they threw into a burning, fiery furnace and destroyed his life. So I say that to say Daniel is a book that's historically accurate. So he says, let's blow this thing seven times hotter. He's so mad. He's so angry. You can't just turn the dial. So there's a bunch of slaves kind of pushing on the bellows, kicking air into this fire. And again, when our barn fire was going, a wood fire burns between 800 and 900 degrees. So just getting close to a fire of that temperature, this cooks you. Crematorium, bodies reduced to ash, 1,100 to 1,500 degrees. And by the way, do you see Jews being cast into a fiery furnace, cranked up hot enough to cremate? Does that sound familiar? The same spirit, the same spirit that was alive in Babylon is the same spirit of anti-Semitism that existed. It's the Jews. It's their fault. They won't bow down. They're the problem. They're the vermin. They're the issue. If we just get rid of them, things will be better. We'll throw them, their bodies, into the crematorium. Cremated thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jewish men, women, and children. So verse 20, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. I think that's interesting because I don't know how you picture these guys. They're serving in the Babylonian court, so to speak. But Nebuchadnezzar gets these big, strong, the bouncers to come. They got tattoos and they got leathers on. And they're the mighty men of valor from the army to bind these guys. Evidently, Nebuchadnezzar was afraid they might put up a fight and that might be a good one. So these guys were probably tough. So they bind them. And then these men were bound in their coats, trousers, and turbans and other garments. They were thrown in with their clothes on and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Again, we're talking about grace. We're seeing the gracelessness of the Babylonian justice system. There's no grace. 
And I find that to be true. Occasionally you find grace in the world, and whenever you find grace, it's a gift of God. But for most part, the world is an ungracious place. The mantra of the world is you get what you deserve, which is not grace. Grace is getting what I didn't deserve. Try grace with your bank when the mortgage is due. People are a little more gracious during the pandemic, but even that comes to an end. So we see this ungrace justice system of Babylon and the fury and the urgency. Now, the details are here for a reason because they're part of God's story of grace. So these are not just random details. They're here for a purpose. Just recognize that when they go into the fire, their arms are bound with ropes and they have all their clothes on. The second thing I want to mention to you, talk about being bound, is if you know your Christian history, which you probably don't because most people don't because it's very boring to read history sometimes, but there's a guy named Polycarp. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Polycarp in Christian history? He became the Bishop of Smyrna in Turkey, born in 69 AD, died in 156 AD. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. So the Apostle John walks with Jesus. Jesus dies, resurrected, ascends. Disciples make other disciples. Polycarp is one of the Apostle John's disciples, Bishop of Smyrna. Now, the interesting thing about his story and how it connects here, I'm going to read to you from Christianity Today. It's not clear exactly why he, Polycarp, was suddenly at age 86 subject to arrest. But when he heard Roman officials were intent on arresting him, he decided to wait for them at home. Panic-stricken friends pleaded with him to flee. So to calm them, he finally agreed to withdraw to a small estate outside of town. But while in prayer there, he received some sort of vision. Whatever he saw or heard, we don't know. He simply reported to his friends that he now understood, I must be burned alive. Roman soldiers eventually discovered Polycarp's whereabouts and came to his door. When his friends urged him to run, Polycarp replied, God's will be done. And he let the soldiers in. He was escorted to the local proconsul, Statius Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on a witty dialogue with Quadratus until he lost his temper and threatened Polycarp. He'd be thrown into wild beasts. He'd be burned at the stake and so on. Polycarp just told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasts but a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. I think he was very purposeful in that statement. Polycarp concluded, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Soldiers then grabbed him to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp stopped them. Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to also remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Did you catch that? You talk about the heart of Jesus. We talk about that all the time. Was it the nails that held Jesus to the cross? Do you think if they didn't nail him there, Jesus, well, I'd get down if it wasn't for these nails. And that same kind of heart in Polycarp there, as he says, look, you don't need to tie me here. You don't need to nail me here. I'm staying here. It's crazy in the Bible. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, we see that some actually welcomed a more difficult death because they believed in a more glorious resurrection. They believed that there was a connection between suffering for Jesus and glory. You know, again, this is the issue that we, the American church, really wrestle with. Our gospel is a gospel of glory without suffering. But sometimes to do what we do, to live for God in a godless world. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
were not the only Jews. There were a bunch taken with them. They were the only four that said, yeah, we're not eating the king's delicacies in chapter one. And now they're the only one. There's all the other Jews going, come on, just do it. I mean, we're in Babylon after all. What's the big deal? Just bow down. You know what? Why not? What's the problem? Just be a chameleon like us. Do whatever the crowd you're with wants you to do so you always fit in. Beware, the Bible says, if everybody speaks well of you. If everybody says what a great person you are, then you're a chameleon. Because you're not being anybody. You're trying to be everybody and you're being nobody and your identity is just a big amorphous blob. You are whatever people tell you to become because all you really want is to be accepted by them. And you'll be accepted by them even if it means being rejected by God. So the story goes on with Polycarp. He prayed aloud, the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. The chronicler of this martyrdom said it was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. The account concluded by saying that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. He is even spoken of by the heathen in every place. So the point of that story was that these guys are taken in bound to the fire. There are instances in history where someone like Polycarp went willingly into that place of potential pain. And it's because we don't recognize and appreciate the grace of God for our times of pain. Now watch what happens. Verse 22, therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their names are given to us over and over and over again. You know the rest of the story, the spoiler alert, they live. And people are going to come talk to them. Are you Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's in the book of Daniel. Yeah, that's us. There'll be more on that to come. They fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So the first thing I want to point out is Nebuchadnezzar always seems to be urgent to bring justice, doesn't he? It's always urgent. You disobey me. You can't tell me my dream. You're dead now. I'm not waiting. And that's how the world is. The world is impatient. The world is filled with impatient people who want it now. We have a very patient God. The word macrothumia is the Greek word for long-suffering. There's two types of patience in the Bible. There's patience with people, and there's patience with circumstances. They're different words. They're different concepts. The patience with people means to have a long fuse, to not have this quick burning anger. It's always urgent. Listen to this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, by the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You want to talk about feeling like things are getting hot. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's as hot as it's ever going to get. We think about Lazarus, the rich man, and Lazarus, where the rich man kind of walks past this guy, this poor guy who's sick with sores and all that, and they both end up in eternity. And Lazarus is receiving comfort, and the rich man is so high, just touch some water to my tongue. I'm just looking for some kind of relief from the heat. So it's as hot as it's ever going to get for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But for Nebuchadnezzar, 
this is as cool as he's ever going to be in the future. God is patient with Nebuchadnezzar. God is patient with me. God is patient with you because God doesn't want anyone, anyone. The fiery furnaces of hell were not meant for people. They were meant for Satan. But if people follow Satan, they follow him to his same end. You follow Jesus, you follow him to his end. Where? Ruling and reigning with God, seated at the right hand of the Father, in his family, in his kingdom, forever for eternity, in a new body. You want to follow Satan? You follow him to his end, cast into the fiery lake of fire. Do not forget this one thing. The Lord is not slow. He just doesn't want anyone to perish. So imagine their thoughts as they're being led up to this fire. The guys leading them there, they're cooked by the fire. They're killed because it's so hot. So they're led up probably a stairway to the top of this big furnace where there was would be like a chimney. They would throw these guys down in through that. And there would be a door at the bottom where Nebuchadnezzar and others could see what was happening inside of the furnace. Verse 24 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? So something gets his attention. He's waiting for the screams of agony that don't last very long. At that temperature, you're incinerated, which is funny thing about anger and fury. They make people irrational. Have you found that to be true? I remember years ago seeing a guy and he had a cast on his hand. Oh, what happened? I broke my wrist, broke my hand. How'd you break it? I punched a wall. Why? I was mad. Well, that was helpful. Did it fix the problem? No. When people get angry, they lose their cool, they lose their temper, they lose their rationality, and they do things that hurt themselves and hurt others, and they don't think clearly. Nebuchadnezzar, if he really wanted to torture these guys, he'd have turned the fire down, would have let it progress a little longer, let it be a little more slow-burning, a little crockpot. But he doesn't, so he's not thinking, so he cranks it up, and something makes him look. Some historical accounts say it was singing that he was hearing from the fire. We don't know for sure, not from the Bible. Didn't we cast three men bound to the fire? Yes, uh, they answered and said to the king, true, O king, yep, you know, get the ledger of three men, one, two, three, we can count the three. Yes, three men. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. I don't know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were expecting, what their thoughts were before they were cast in. Was their fear? Was their peace? The whole account seems pretty peaceful from their point. For Polycarp, it was peace. Very peaceful going to his death. I remember reading accounts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer going to his hanging two weeks before the camp he was in gets released and the war ends, and he goes very peacefully to his hanging. Now, we look at that from where we are today and we go, I don't understand how someone could experience that peace at that time. You're right, you can't. Because we fear the what ifs. What if I do the right thing? And what if this happened? We're just caught up in the what ifs of our lives. What if this and what if that? And it paralyzes us. And we live in fear and we've already played the scenario out in our minds to the nth degree and we know what's going to happen and we can't imagine. And because we can't imagine it, it must not be true. And I've learned in my life that God can do a lot of things I can't imagine. There's a guy in our church, there's people that I know that have been through some really hard things. A guy in our church, who's in a wheelchair and it's been his testimony. He said, oh, it must be really hard. You must be really upset about what happened to you. You're paralyzed. And he said, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. That's his testimony. 
we look on and we go, wow, that must be awful. But the testimony of God's grace is, you'd never believe how God has used this in my life. Can God really take care of me? Is this grace really going to be there for me? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will tell you, absolutely. They're not hurt. They are fireproof. Really, the fire just kind of misses them. They're shielded from it. Didn't we cast three men in? Yes. But now there's four men, and notice they're loosed. The grace of God is not the same for everyone. Think about this. The grace of God is not the same for everyone. God's grace is for everyone, but what he chooses to do for you may be different than what he chooses to do for them. And that's where we get tripped up as Christians. I had a friend who knew somebody who knew somebody who had a relative whose parent had cancer and they were healed. Or I knew somebody directly who got a healing from this or that. Why did God heal them and not me? Or why did God do this for them and not for me? God fixed their marriage. God released them from addiction. God took away the desire for alcohol from them. Just took it away. Why doesn't God do that for me? He knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows exactly what you need. What about God's grace for Daniel? Daniel. Where's Daniel? We can speculate about where Daniel is. He's on some official government business somewhere. Who knows? But God's grace for Daniel, because you better believe Daniel wasn't going to bow if he was there. But God's grace for Daniel was that he missed the party. He was out of town. He didn't have to go through it. That was God's grace for Daniel. There's God's grace for countless others that have passed through the fire, and God has used the fire to usher them into heaven, like Polycarp, who haven't been delivered in a miraculous way other than the miraculous way of receiving a new body or being with a family that the mother had cancer. And man, I I prayed with every ounce of faith I had. I prayed with mountain moving faith that she'd be healed. And I I could picture, I can imagine her being healed. And I thought for sure. And I walked out of that house and God said, Steve, I'm answering your prayer. Her body will be fully and completely healed. In fact, she'll have a new one that will not have cancer. I'm just choosing to answer that prayer on the other side of earth, in heaven. That's God's grace. So there's been God's grace, but then there's God's grace for these three. One more story, and then we'll close. Two Christians had been imprisoned for their faith, and it came time for them. One was the older, and one was the younger. And the older one had sort of mentored the younger one in prison, sort of been his mentor, his disciple, while they'd been in prison together. And I can't remember where it was, but they were coming to the place where the old guy was going to get burned at the stake. And they came up with this plan. They had the discussion, are you afraid? Are you not afraid? And the old guy said, I'm not afraid. But the young guy was dealing with fear. And he said, let's do this. We need a way for you to communicate with me from the fire. If while you're in the fire, if it's not painful, if you're experiencing the grace of God, if you raise your hands, that'll be an indicator to me that God is meeting you there. So that's exactly what happened. He goes to be burned at the stake and his head is down and his arms are down. And as the young man is watching his mentor be burned at the stake, all of a sudden this guy's arms go up to heaven. And it was a sign to the young man that at that moment, God's grace was getting him through. He was not experiencing pain. Sometimes God will help you avoid it, but sometimes God will lead you through it. He'll be with you in it. We want to avoid hard things, but sometimes those hard things are the best things. Think of the grace that they are going to experience. They're going to come out and go, wow, 
we experience God's grace in a way in the fire that we never could have understood the grace of God outside of that trial. Our barn, when our barn burnt down, it was difficult. We experienced God's grace in that way of the prayer, but we experienced God's grace another way. Remember what they went in with? They went in with these bindings on their hands. They were bound. But what did they say now? We see four men loose in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. Their clothes are still on, but what bound them was taken away. So for us, our barn was a storage facility for us. We had all this stuff. Imagine if you have a storage unit, imagine your storage unit burning down. All this stuff you feel you need. I got to have it. I can't live without it. All of a sudden it's burned up in the fire and you go, wow. For us, it was very freeing. There's some things in there that we missed. I think Helga's wedding dress might have been in there. Sentimental things, but you know what? It's okay. We've realized that we didn't need it. We didn't need it. So it's very freeing. Sometimes the things you learn, the things you're set free from in the crisis are so much more valuable than having not gone through it at all. First Peter 1, 6 In all this, you greatly rejoice, Peter writes, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than a gold statue, that's not what he says, but greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And there's more we could talk about what happens, what we learn, and what we experience when we go through the fire. The fourth man, lots of ink spilled on who that person is. The orthodox statement is Nebuchadnezzar notices his remark is like a son of God. And then he says it was an angel. Most people say this is Jesus. Now, anytime we see God show up in human form, his human form is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So whenever in the Old Testament we see God showing up in a presence, in a physical presence, it's Jesus coming to earth, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth in a bodily form. So here we have him in the fire with these guys present. That's not something you can explain to somebody. However, two people that have gone through the fire can relate. They can say, did you experience Jesus in that? Oh yeah, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about how I experienced Jesus in the hardest time of my life. So he's there. Twofold grace of God. They're not burnt up and Jesus' presence is there. Double miracle. Verse 26, the Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, but not too close, and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. (laughs) Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's question to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And who is the God who will save you from my hand? I think God was offended by that. Not really. God said, oh yeah, I'll show you who the God is who can rescue these guys. Who is the God who will save me from my hand? God says, I am. But now all the same people are gathered around. There's no music playing. No one's looking at the image. What they're looking at is a living miracle, a living example of the grace of God. It's way more powerful. I wonder how many of those people were challenged 
by that day. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let's read on. Let's read on, and then we'll kind of think about some things. Because we don't hear anything from these guys. Like, they don't speak. Nebuchadnezzar speaks a lot. These guys don't speak. What would they say after they came out of the fire? Wasn't that lucky? Boy, we got lucky. We're glad we wore our fire retardant clothes today. Glad I picked that outfit out of the closet today. Could they take any credit? See, sometimes God takes you through the fire to humble you. Because you think you got your life all controlled, all sorted out. Your money will insulate you, your power, your prestige, your fame, your this, your whatever. I can take care of myself. So God will put you in an instance where you can't. Then he'll show you his grace. That's how good God is. He doesn't do that to badger you or to, to shame you. He does it to show you that you can trust him. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because the testing of your faith produces patience. And then the next time you're in a trial, you go, oh, no problem. I've been through worse. I've been through some fire. I know God handled me there. God can handle me here. And faith has just increased. So I don't know what they would say, but watch what Nebuchadnezzar says. He spoke saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not Nebuchadnezzar's God. He's still their God who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their house shall be made in ash heap because there is no other god who can deliver like this. So now they have a government-protected, tolerated worship for themselves. But Nebuchadnezzar is impressed, but he's not humble. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We don't have any note of him tearing down the statue. Wouldn't you like to see that? And after they came out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar ordered that his stupid statue be torn down because it's useless and worthless compared to the living God that serves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we don't see that. Nebuchadnezzar is going to do whatever it takes to make himself more powerful. And if that means surrounding himself with people who have a powerful God, this is all about the gods that are powerful. So Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer. We'll see that in chapter four. But here's what fascinates me. Let's say this is happening on a Friday. It's the end of the weekend. Weekend goes by. Monday, they show up for work. They clock in at the office of the government of Magi and soothsayers at Babylon. And there's all the other guys looking at them. They just stroll into work and everybody's going, I don't smell anything either. Of course, they've changed clothes by then. Maybe they didn't. I'd still be wearing the same clothes. I'm like, yeah, this is what I wore into the fire. Still got it on. But what is the conversation that happens around the water cooler? Who is the person that calls them aside and says, tell me about your God? What did it feel like in there? What did you experience? You just have to wonder because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fall off the pages of scripture. We don't hear anything else from them. Nothing. So you have to imagine, what would it have been like? What was it like for the rest of the Jews in Babylon and throughout history to read of this story and how they were an encouragement? And we see God's grace even in this place, verse 30, God's grace. They get a promotion. They were supposed to be dead, but they get a promotion. Isn't God awesome? I mean, God's ways. You know what? In my life, the world I live in, 
there is way more that I don't know. I just don't, there's so much I don't know. And there is so much I can't control. So you know what? My life is simple because I just try my best to listen to God, to forgive people, to do unto others as I would have others do unto me, to be gentle and humble, to let God work through me through love. I mean, I fail at it regularly. But I know that God's grace is there. You worry about family. You worry about what could happen, what might happen, what if. I remember sending my kids and my wife to New York City for a visit to her parents lived there and they would go visit. And I remember putting them in the car. This is just free practical information of how God's word infects our daily life. And I remember putting them in the car. These are the three people on earth I love more than anything else. Putting them all in the car, sending them up I-95 to New York. And every time I would do that, there would be that fear of what if? What if all three of them are killed in a car accident? And I could spend all day, we could spend our whole lives worrying about the what ifs. Because it happens. It happened to some of you. And I remember at that point thinking that whatever comes next, I just trust that God will give me the grace to handle it. Have you found, just by show of hands, have you found that God's grace has helped you get through some very difficult times in your life? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not fear but experience your grace for our greatest times of need, Lord. We want to be willing to obey you, to serve you no matter what, that we wouldn't bow down to all the world's pressures. The world is turning up the heat on us, and I think it's not over yet. And Lord, we pray that we could say with the Apostle Paul, Lord, do we count our lives dear to ourselves, that we might continue to our testimony of the goodness and the grace of the living God. So Lord, grow us in really needed ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.